My guest this week is an unusual founder in at least two ways. He's been operating his blockchain project since 2017, and he's doing it for people who are most in need of help. It's called Building Blocks, and it claims to be the world's largest humanitarian use of blockchain. It's part of the World Food Programme, where Human Haddad is Head of Emerging Technologies. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. So, Human, you worked for the World Food Programme, and you are responsible for a particular uh, initiative in that called Building Blocks. Perhaps you could just give me a quick introduction to what Building Blocks is all about. It's, at its core, a humanitarian blockchain network, uh, which aims to, in a neutral manner, bring various actors together as 100% co-owners, co-operators, and co-governors. So then we can build various humanitarian applications on top of this network, such as value transfers, such as digital identity, perhaps. And by putting the people we serve at the very center, gaining a common visibility on who's assisting whom with what, being able to coordinate that assistance to ensure more equitable outcomes, and also making the redemption process simpler for the people who are dependent on that assistance. And so it's a private blockchain it is. that's been created specially for this project. Yes. And it's been going since 2017. That's right. Very early on, really, yes. in the history of blockchain. Yeah. How did you get involved with that then? How did you manage to come up with it at that very early stage? My background is finance. I used to work in the banking sector before I joined the UN. And when I did join the UN, it was also in finance. And in the humanitarian world, a concept of so-called cash-based transfers was taking off. Uh, prior to that, we brought bags of rice and corn and gave it to the people who needed it. And the philosophy of cash-based transfers is to see whether uh, people can make their own choices. So perhaps you might give a food voucher where they might go to a supermarket and choose what they actually uh, may want. And it has several benefits to it, several disadvantages. But as I was within the finance section, the problems with doing that, especially in inter-organizational context, were becoming apparent. And I've always been keen on technology. I had read about blockchain a bit. And I thought, could we use blockchain to overcome some of these um, some of these challenges. I made a proposal about building blocks to our innovation accelerator. It got accepted and we did a pilot and then kind of, you know, evolved from there. Right. Because one of the advantages is that uh, if there are competition between different agencies, then that can be um, negotiated through building blocks and you won't get duplication and things. Yes. I mean, uh, to... The way I see it is trying to promote cooperation, uh, cooperating on the infrastructure, competing on the services. One way I think about it is imagine DHL, UPS, and um, FedEx. They're all in the business one way or another of delivering packages. Imagine you're in a city that has no roads. Would it make sense for each one of these companies to build a separate road to each house or to collaborate to put a road infrastructure and then for them to compete on who can deliver the package faster, cheaper, more securely, uh, whatever it might be. And so the idea is kind of more or less the same here. Let's collaborate on the infrastructure and let's see 
who can serve people better. And of course, we have different mandates. Ours is to end uh, hunger. UNHCR is to um, protect refugees. UNICEF is to look after children. Uh, but there are sometimes overlaps. You could be um, a refugee child that's hungry. So, you know. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, let's just go into the technological side of it mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. If I'm somebody who's uh, a participant in the program, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the recipients of food or, or health care or whatever, what would the experience be like for me, particularly if I haven't got a phone or something? That's critical because most of the people we serve don't have phones or connectivity or the digital literacy to manage a private key, which, you know, would be the quote unquote proper blockchain use case. The way we've designed uh, our system is so that the people we serve don't need any of those things uh, or don't necessarily need any of those things. But we do need connectivity and a device at the point of distribution. So, for example, in the supermarket. And uh, the people have accounts on the blockchain, the various tokens have gone in there, they've gone coordinated already, and they show up, and they select what they want, and it's checked whether what they're redeeming is available according to entitlements, and we need to have some form of authentication. In Jordan, it's uh, iris biometrics, in Bangladesh, uh, it was finger biometrics before COVID. But it can be nothing. It can be a QR code. It could be a simple pin. We don't dictate as building blocks what the authentication mechanism should be. It really depends on the context of the operation, the risks involved. So long story short, uh, we don't want to uh, leave the most vulnerable behind by requiring certain things like phone connectivity, which many may not have. However, our vision is hopefully, ultimately, the people take ownership and control over their own accounts, which means controlling the private key. And the way we've designed our system, at that stage, we won't simply hand them their private key. They would generate their own private key and we would transfer ownership to them so that we don't even have their private key. But let's just go back a step. Yeah. To sign somebody up yeah. into the system. Yeah. If I just turn up out of the blue and I just give my name, <laughs> what is it that you will require? I mean, you, you've, you've talked about different ways of authenticating, yeah. but the, so the, the process would start off by scanning my retina or something, and then what would I come away with? I, I, in that case, all I need to bring is my eye, I guess, but yeah. t- tell me a bit so about are, how that process works. There are many, many steps involved, and uh, for the record, we don't touch, we don't store uh, any names, birth dates, or biometrics. We work as uh, in a collaborative manner with other organizations who help the same people. So let's take a case of a, you know, a refugee. Uh, you're a Rohingya refugee. You've just crossed over the border to Bangladesh. Either you didn't have any documents or they were burned away. So uh, UNHCR, who is uh, responsible for refugees, would take you in. They would record all of your data to the extent you could provide them. Name By me just giving answers. Yes. So yeah. If there is a document, they would use it. If not, whatever you could provide, biographic data, demographic data. And then they would capture your biometrics, including, for example, for your eyes. Now, UNHCR has a mandate for protection. So to to the extent possible, particularly for a vulnerable group as refugees, to try to shield their real-world identity so you know they cannot be persecuted. So what they would do is they would issue you a pseudonymous alphanumeric code as a person. Then typically they would group people into families and they would issue a code for the family. 
in Bangladesh, when we assist the Rohingya, is at the family level. So UNHCR would share us with the pseudonymous code, not even for the individual, but for the family, and how many people are in that family. And would I get walk away with this code on a piece of paper? Or you what? would have a document, yes. You would have an ID card, because that would be a document that you would need to prove who you are, which would have that code on it, issued by UNHCR. But we don't need the name birth date. All we need is this pseudonymous but code. But UNHCR has the details yes, of the do. name and everything. Yes, yes, and they must, and what, as part of their mandate. And what happens if the person loses the card? They go back to UNHCR and they get a new one. Because the, then they just have to say, I'm, they give their name and everything. And, they... and if they're biometrically registered, that can be verified, right? right? Yeah. So now that information would then come to WFP or a, a, actually any other organization that works with refugees would be using the unit's your data, typically. So then you get this um, alphanumeric pseudonymous code and that there's five people in it. We as WFP would create a blockchain account for that pseudonymous code. And even that code we don't store on the chain. So there will be a blockchain wallet address. In our own backend, there will be association between the two. We will put food tokens in this account. So when the beneficiary goes to the supermarket or wherever, they uh, select their card. As part of the checkout process, let's say in Jordan, when they would scan their iris, this uh, scan would get converted to a template. End-to-end encrypted would go to UNHCR. And UNHCR will return simply the family Code. And what is the person in the shop who works in the shop? What device or app are they using to communicate back? Depends on the context. So in Jordan, for example, uh, because of the iris biometrics, there's a terminal there. So that in Bangladesh, we have our own mobile application. Uh, but the point being that uh, what we get back is simply the family pseudonymous identifier biometrically verified, which is enough for us to trigger the private key and redeem the child. So the shop will be said, will get confirmation, yes, this person has a credit for the food or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, they, they get a confirmation from our blockchain after the transaction that the transaction has been approved and therefore we as WFP back financially the payment to you for that transaction. Right. This is a sort of ba- very basic question. Could this be done without a blockchain? Could be, this just be some great big database? Absolutely. And so why didn't you do that? Wouldn't it have been cheaper? The issue is, again, to think of this, the humanitarian ecosystem, as something that wasn't designed, that evolved in response to various crises, wars, earthquakes, uh, famine. There are multiple organizations assisting the same people. And typically each organization, especially in a non-refugee context, does its own registration. It reaches out or people come to it. So there are many databases that exist and there are many transactions that happen. So the question would become, which one of these databases, which one of these many systems would you use? And um, sort of a, a political challenge would be there that why should it be your system versus ours? So there would be a competition on whose system is mm. best. And through that, the coordination could not happen. And through that, the people we serve could fall on the crowd. So, so it's the nature of a blockchain that it feels like it's not owned by the World Food Program. or It's that- more than just feels. We've went through an extreme amount of thought and effort over the past seven years to make sure on paper, on chain, according to our legal documents, Everyone is 100% co-owner, co-operator, and co-governor of the network. There is zero hierarchy. And distributed ledger technology in general allows this. 
but uh, blockchain is a subset of DLT in that transactions can only be added, never deleted, which is an important aspect for us for the transparency and accountability. So really, it's blockchain that guarantees that even at the system level, everything is truly equal. And we hope that is what's going to help us break through the potential barriers of our system versus yours. But the servers mm -hmm. are World Food Program servers, aren't they? They sit in your under your jurisdiction? Our blockchain node of building blocks sits in our jurisdiction. UN Women's blockchain node sits in their jurisdiction. Uh -huh. So everyone contains full independent control over their nodes. And it's the nodes that automatically connect together and maintain themselves forming the blockchain foundation, on top of which we launch our smart contracts or applications such as value transfer, which is what we're using. So if you want to be an organization that participates mm -hmm. in the network, does that mean you need to get your own node you must get your own one. Yes. Right. Uh, we have a governance framework which delineates things such as membership criteria uh, to us as UN organizations and international NGOs with a do no harm principle at heart. Uh, we store no sensitive data on chain, although it's private and we protect it heavily, our assumption one day it could get hacked. And if it gets hacked, there's nothing interesting for a hacker to see there because there's what still... We want to make sure, at least in principle, organizations who have access to the network don't have an intention of harming the people we serve. Then there's such things as uh, network maintenance, dispute resolution, data protection, privacy. And one of the requirements is to operate the same number of validator nodes as other organizations. So this way, as I mentioned earlier, your on-chain power and your off-chain power is equal. And that's how we maintain that neutrality and equality I was, uh, I was referring to earlier. Now, you're here at the London Blockchain Conference, which is all about Bitcoin SV, mm -hmm. which is a public blockchain. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about public versus private blockchain and particular potential for the work that you're doing? So, um, conceptually, I favor a public chain because it doesn't make the people we serve and the organizations who use our technology dependent on WFP or the UN or the humanitarian country. It will be self-sustaining. In fact, our proof of concept in Pakistan was done on a public chain. We had 100 people for three days. We quickly discovered, though, and I'll get to the BSV part of it, we quickly discovered uh, issues with speed and with cost. Was that Ethereum? Or? It was Ethereum, yeah. And... Uh, and also the fact that the transactions, although pseudonymous, are still publicly visible, which is why we went uh, to a private implementation, which allows us to, our gas price is set to zero, so we don't have a transaction cost. It can go much faster than the public chain, and more importantly, it's private. So in, in that sense, if a public blockchain were to able to solve the speed cost at the same level of security and allow the same level of privacy, as we have, I think it would be a better solution because then we don't have to operate our own infrastructure, at least not blockchain nodes, and we make it less dependable on few actors and uh, dependent on a very large number of actors who have crypto economic incentives to keep operating the network. It would be cheaper for new people to join, wouldn't it? Uh, depends uh, depends on what the uh, because operating the nodes are not very expensive. And uh, I know the transaction costs, especially for BSV, are quite low. 
But if you have millions and millions of transactions, for example, it could turn out that it's actually more expensive than operating right, a single node. Right, no transaction costs at yeah, all. But yeah, yeah. still, just the fact that you have to operate this node, apply apply updates mm. to it, worry about you know whether mm. whether it's gone offline or not. I think uh, if a cost-effective, secure, and private enough public chain existed, I would go to to switch to that. Right. Uh, so, mm. <laughs> have you reached that point? I mean, you've you found out about Bitcoin SV here. The issue is for the moment, then the transaction would still be public. So it doesn't solve the privacy issue. Public, but not identifiable. They're potentially re-identifiable. So if you're serving a small enough community and the, the public address of the vendor where the tokens are being spent is found out, and through the timing, through, you know, depending on how granular your token is, it, you could narrow down uh, individuals' potential to to fewer, so out of a few hundred to maybe a few tens. Right. And depending how intent you were doing, uh, you are on doing harm, then you could you know take additional steps to really go down to the level of an individual. Point is that we're really not comfortable with taking uh, any extra risk, or in that sense, mm-hmm. at least doing our best to um, protect the best we can. And the fact that our chain is only visible to, as I mentioned, people who uh, have a demonstrated history of do no harm makes us sleep a little bit uh, easier at night versus if we knew that it's fully out in the public. And yeah, we started in 2017. It's been quite a while. But within the humanitarian community, there is still a... Blockchain is not very well understood. For example, what's touted about blockchain after is, is its transparency. So there's been articles on the internet about us putting refugee passports on the chain, which is, of course, ridiculous, and we've never done that. But in that sense, also to gain buy-in and participation. And I feel maybe once we've reached a certain critical mass, once we have more data, and once we have better metrics to evaluate the level of risk versus the benefit we could get uh about going on a public chain, then that might be a good time to kind of reconsider uh, potentially shifting. I'm not really able to comment on that, that, that question of privacy, but I understand what you're saying, that if, if somebody were to be able to look at the blockchain with somebody's private key, then they would be able to at least see what transactions were related to that private key. But even if they didn't understand what the transactions really represented, because they're not going to say, you know, one bag of flour or something, are they? But that's that's a good point. So uh, as I mentioned, one key thing uh, for us is coordination. And the coordination needs to be based on something. So with our tokens, we stop at what we call the category level. So we have a token that says food, but we don't say what food was bought with this token. Because if another humanitarian organization is giving food, if they see WFB is giving food, that's enough either for them to coordinate directly on chain or get in touch with us so we can coordinate off chain, right? But as you mentioned, if it gets down to granular that we do have that data off chain, rice, corn, you know, chili, pepper, salt, everything that is, but that would definitely increase the risk of re-identification. But I think that on the BSV blockchain, it would all be hashed so that you wouldn't be able to actually, you're not going to see the word food or anything on chain in public. It's well, all just going to be a hash. That I means think it no- depends on the properties of the token. But if you, have, our point is we want to enable coordination. So if we ha- just hash it, 
then there's no point putting it there to begin with because we want others to see that this was a food token to coordinate with us. But I think and, that the people, I think the people you wanted to see that could be given access to that so that they could sort of uh, unscramble it. Well, you could uh, potentially, yes. I mean, you could uh, salt uh, data before hashing it, but if you so if you share the salt, then if that salt gets out, all of your data becomes. So it's not a good right. security practice to do it. So if you think about it enough, really, um, you would have to think, what is the main incentive of going public? For me, it's self-sustainability. Mm. But if you consider, uh, for us, cost is not an issue. For us, throughput is not an issue. Um, so then when you add this privacy aspect and all its implication, uh, at the moment, it would still be undecided whether you know public is better than private or not. So what is the future for your project? I mean, it sounds like it's stabilized. You've, you've got a big, uh, a large amount of money passing through it now. Uh, what, what are the next steps? Or is it just going to continue to do the work that it's doing? Well, it's, you know, we've, we've made a lot of progress in certain parts and not in other parts. The technology, as difficult as it's been, has been the easier part. The change management aspect and the buy-in has been the more difficult part. So we've had now 50 organizations use uh, our system, 40 just in Ukraine. We've prevented $100 million of unintentional overlap, duplication, through this effort. But we haven't had many join formally, as we call it, to set up those nodes, to create that decentralization, to bring that additional level of accountability. And we're a small team of three. Really? Globally. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, just between managing everything and pushing all of this, we're also trying to do advocacy and all of that. So the next step is really getting that wider involvement. Uh, so we have more organizations operating independently, their own nodes. And then to foster a better understanding of how blockchain works, how tokenization works, um, the good practices, the bad practices. And through getting that comfort, maybe then taking the next steps to, for example, digital identity. Um, a refugee on average remains a refugee for 15 years. They are born there, they get uh, married there, they get education certificate, health certificate. If they go back home or to a third country, often that information stays back in the many systems of the many organizations that assisted them. What if they could own that information? What if they could take it? What if they could use it? But even with a simple uh, use case of coordinating assistance, it's still not well understood. So my hope is that we get more people, we make this use case very well understood, and everyone becomes more comfortable uh, with other use cases that could be done on chain, which are technologically ready, but uh, I think as a humanitarian community, culturally, we're not ready for it. Well, it sounds like an incredible achievement that you've got already. So I just wish you every luck with it because it's such a fantastic project. And thank you so much for Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Thank you. Right, thank you. Thanks very much to Human Haddad. Next week, I'll be talking dating apps and BSV startup investment with Kirsty Barony Gibson of Access New York. So please join us for that. And until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.